The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach would be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race trips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA Foo scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT22 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay RX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Marietta, Georgia. I am a father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I am also an endurance athlete in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a mom to three girls and work as a CPA. Michelle and I did a race together this past weekend. We have now done two trail races in two months, one in November, one in December on the same course. That kind of fires me up, Michelle. That feels like we're doing like stuff that people who are podcast co-hosts do. <laughs> yeah, I would I would use the term together, you know, very, very loosely. I very uh, much but... feel like it's together. I very <laughs> much feel like your presence on the course. I like seeing you at the start. I like talking about it beforehand. I like exchanging all the, the Strava maps and that sort of thing before it begins. I, I, I very much feel that way. That's but anyway, fair. keep going. How are you feeling? Oh, man. Well, if I talked about not uh, being sore after shut-in and how it was a little disappointing because I didn't feel like I, you know, worked that hard or ran that hard. I've... I've I'm making up for it right now. Uh, it's Wednesday. <laughs> I think we ran on Sunday. Um, I'm, I think I am training with somebody who has a philosophy that running on, you know, fatigued, sore legs is fine. As long as you're not injured, 
Mm-hmm. So I was really happy to come away totally uninjured. I'm just unbelievably sore. Mm-hmm. And I've gone on a few short runs Monday, Tuesday, and it actually hurt less to run than it does just to get around my house. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually have, I actually brought laundry to like a certain part of the house that I never would just so I don't have to go up and down stairs <laughs> and I folded it and it is going to stay at the bottom of the stairs right, right. for another few days because <laughs> I'm not carrying anything up and down stairs. I'm using the banister. Um, I'm all in on the, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness, but I'm hoping right. that it kind of peaked about 48 hours after I finished, which was kind of late yesterday. So yeah, yeah. I, I went to the pool this morning and I actually did a workout in the pool. Um, and it just felt so good to get my heart rate up, but my mm-hmm. legs didn't hurt. It was right. just like, Oh, I love swimming. And I actually <laughs> don't love swimming, <laughs> but you know, you're in a weird place physically. If you actually find yourself saying, I love swimming. <laughs> oh, and not only that, but I didn't, I did not think one time I'm going to cut this workout short which is unbelievable for me. It was just glorious to feel my heart rate elevated and not be in pain. (laughs) Good. Very good. Very good. And so I have to ask then, so since you, since you mentioned after shut in, you said that you weren't sore and that bothered you because I was just wrecked sore after shut in. I was sore after this one too, but not like I was after shut in. Yeah. Um, So does that, does this mean that, that you feel better about this race because you actually are physically sore following the race? I mean, I feel better about this race for a lot of reasons. Um, physically it's the, pine, sore, it's, a, it's the Pine Mountain Trail Run. It was 19 miles, just short of 19 miles. It was a little bit more than 19 miles for you, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> and it had it had about, what, 3,100 feet of climbing, about 3,000, something like that. Yeah. I mean, right. it was about three-fifths of the amount of climbing we did the last time we did a 19-mile trail race. Yeah. Um. So I think that was helpful in the sense that it was just more runnable, which Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about. Mm -hmm. I would prefer that. Um, There were actually extenuating circumstances that made it not as runnable, but I just, they didn't bother me as much as, you know, the terrain or the weather it shut in. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the course is notorious for having leaves that have really just fallen. I mean, we're in, you know, we're south of Atlanta here. So really the leaves have just come off the trees probably within the last week or two before the race. And there's the majority of this course, you can't even see the trail. Um, mm-hmm. the, le- the leaf coverage is so thick that I cannot tell you how many times I would see out of the corner of my eye, somebody just coming back from like the left or the right. Like you just, you run off trail and you don't even realize you're off trail. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is really rocky. So I just had the mentality that I was never actually landing, you know, on dirt. I was <laughs> going to somehow make contact with the rocks under the leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really it was just a more runnable course than shut in. So I think the soreness comes mostly from, you know, actually being able to put out a greater effort in running versus power hiking, so to speak. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I would say that this course is is sort of mid-range as far as technicality goes, right? That the I sure. I and it definitely had some parts that were like you're kind of having to maneuver around rocks and that kind of thing where you, you oh, you're yeah. forced to walk. Um had some steep hills, but then it also had some really sort of lovely sections where you're where you're just kind of running through the woods. Um at a, at a solid clip with a, uh, with, with a nice view. Um, and so, so yeah, I would say it was kind of mid range. It was not, certainly not as technical as a lot of the sections of, of shut in were, um, but it was certainly more technical than Kennesaw mountain where oh, yeah. uh, you and I have run many, many times before um, where, uh, which is right up the street from where I live. Um, so, so, so yeah. So I think it was good practice um, uh, given that the mountain miss is, is of course a much more technical course um, than the trails that I normally just run on for, day-to-day training um, yeah it was good it was definitely a good race ahead of mountain and you had a good result um yeah i was pretty happy i w- went off i didn't mean to get out kind of maybe in the top third or fourth of the pack but i was out quickly enough that i didn't think there was more than about 10 women ahead of me just from the get-go uh which is pretty that's a pretty <laughs> pretty uh like I don't know. I don't know why I'm losing the, my word, but I don't usually go out that fast. Okay. Let's just say that I'll let other people go. And then in my mind, it's like either I can catch them or they're just faster than me. Um, but I didn't really go out with that mentality, 
but very less than two miles into the race, I followed a group of guys and we went about like seven tenths of a mile off course. Oof. So, so that was a little demoralizing. Um, I caught back up, I think with every female that I could by about mile 10. And then I never saw like another woman in front of me. And once the results came in, it, I thought I was in eighth or ninth and initially it had looked like I was in sixth, but they did make the correction. So I came in eighth female, but the next fastest female, I think she was 30 minutes ahead of me. Um, And then the other few people in front of her, they were kind of stacked right there. So that is kind of the feeling that I got from the beginning. And it was sort of, um, I sort of knew by mile 10 that I had caught back up and passed as many people as I thought I might pass which is, which is what had happened. So I just, my goal for the, for the second half of the race was just not to be passed. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't by at least another female. I did toggle back and forth a little bit with these two other women, but I mean, eventually I just, they really annoyed me. So I just ran away from them. Uh, <laughs> so They weren't really, I, in my mind, I was like 20 minutes ahead of them by the time I finished, they were so not that far behind, <laughs> but I guess it was enough that you know, whether it was physical or, or mental, uh, I didn't, all I know is every time I looked around, they weren't behind me. They were never in in eyesight. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it felt good. So and that's, that's kind of the nature of a trail race too. Somebody can be only 90 seconds behind you and you can sort of take a peek when you go around a corner and not see them. Um, or, you know, you might think that they're 90 seconds since you never get to see them. And it turns out they're a lot farther behind you than that. So yeah, you just never quite know exactly where you, where, where you line up. So good. I'm glad you're feeling good about it. Um, like I told you after the race, and I think you might have thought that I was kind of blowing smoke up your ass when I said this, and I wasn't, um, that like running off course fairly early on, that's super demoralizing. I mean, this race, I did it in 2019 and I got lost and I just like shut down and was like just feeling bad for myself. And granted, I ran four extra miles. Um, and and that was the difference between winning and getting second place in 2019. But but it, yeah, I did not handle it well at all. Um, and so the fact that you like ran off course, but you pulled it back together and kind of got your mind right again and then continued on and ran a good race. Kudos, man. That's hard to do. Yeah, it was hard to do. But I think that the by the time we got back on course, there were so many people right in front of me that it was more of just a game of just pick the next person off. Right on. Um, I, I think I made a mistake. There was one of the climbs maybe around mile five or six. And it felt like there was a Congo line of eight to 12 men. Mm-hmm. I found out later in the race, at least there was like a group of eight of them that were there and they were going to all stay together. And they were, it was so frustrating. So I just passed them going up, mm-hmm. which I probably should have, you know, that might be a rookie mistake, like just kind of hang back and don't use the extra effort going up. And I got past the fourth guy and then I tripped. <laughs> yeah. I didn't fall. I, I I stayed on my feet the whole time, but it was one of those, you know, you kind of go right, left, and then get an idea of whether you're even standing. Yeah. Um, so that was really embarrassing. But then I just then I just hauled ass past the rest of them. Yeah. Um, so it was helpful, I think, that getting back on course and just constantly having a few people here and there or a next pack of people to just slowly work my way up to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a definite, like once, once I was at the aid station and they were pretty clear that the next gap was, you know, 10 plus minutes, I, I sort of just, I didn't lollygag, but I was, I was more racing to just keep my place you from the people behind me than I was to catch up with anyone who might be in front of me. You so. cruised. Yeah. That, that I mean, you cruised it in and I think that's okay. I think that's probably smart too, on a technical course. <laughs> um with 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 rocks and roots that you can't see because the leaves are covering them um when you're feeling i mean because things can happen right um and so so you basically went into to sort of maintenance mode rather than than you know chasing people down mode um and i think that's probably a good thing i don't think that's a bad thing yeah um it's funny you say that 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 you kind of got caught behind this conga line of people. One thing that I was reminded of with this race, and I've thought about a lot over the course of the past few weeks, and I mentioned this after after the last trail race you and I did together, is that similar to a bike race, you really are in a trail race locked into sort of what the group is doing. You don't get to just run your own race. Um, that that uh, the race does get influenced by the people that are around you, and you can get caught behind somebody or behind eight somebodies when you're going up a hill and they're going much more slow than you would like 
or you might have to jump out of the way so that somebody can go downhill faster than you or, or something else like that. Like all of those sorts of things end up getting um, influencing the race. You don't just go out there and run your own race and run steady. Um, all those sorts of things happen just the same way they would in a bike race. Do you think there's a general rule of thumb? Like it's just not worth passing on an up? Like eventually. No, I, I, I moved into the lead on an up. Um, and I think okay. that's a good thing. So talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you know that you have the, either like the athleticism or the re reserves that you're going to need, you know, 10 miles later to blow past somebody climbing? The way that I ran the race is that, that I was in sort of a group of six. Um, for the first few miles. And then one guy twisted his ankle and we went through an aid station and a few other things. And it just basically kind of started to thin out. Um, and I ran up and ran with the guy who was in second for a little while and then kind of ran his pace. And then I felt like you know, I felt stronger than I thought that he was, um, particularly when we would go uphill. Um, you know, I, I, and so, so I went on by um, and then kind of ran away from him and caught up with the first guy and ran with him until right about the halfway point. And there was a big hill going up to the highest point of the course right there around halfway. Um, and we were part of the way up that hill. Um, and and I could hear him breathing. And I was fine. Uh, and I was like, I can run this. I can run this section faster. Um, and we were, like I said, at that point, we're halfway into the race. And so I, yeah, I kind of knew that that I was still holding back some, but I didn't have to hold back so, so much. Right. Um, sure. And so, 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 I, so I went ahead and slid by him and said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and run up this hill. And so I went ahead and pressed a little bit up that hill. Um, and within a mile, I was a minute in front of him. Um, That's amazing. And, w and when was that? That was right around halfway, just before the uh, aid station that was at 10.3. Yeah. Because when I got to 10.3, I got the Intel George is leading the race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I had only moved into the lead of the race about a mile prior to that going up that hill. Um, cool. but for, for me, the, the, the question is always, should I move, should I pass this person going uphill knowing that this person might pass me going downhill again? Well, and that's, um, that has happened to me way too many times. That yeah. is so embarrassing. Yeah. Me. It's, I find it, that embarrassing. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's frustrating. Um, and so, but I had, I, we had just come off a long downhill. I knew from looking at the course profile that there wasn't like a big, long downhill coming up. And so that if I went ahead and, and put a little bit of a gap here going up this hill, then I probably wasn't going to have to step out of the way anytime too, too soon. Um, and knowing that that because I was feeling a lot better than I sensed that the other guy was feeling, um, that I probably had the potential to put a pretty big gap on him over the remainder of that hill, of that of that long hill. Um, and I did. So so that 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 was I mean, that was all the various things that were kind of going through my head. And it is so much different. Like I said, it's more like a bike race that that, you know, in in a road race, you just go, you just, you know, move to the other side of the road and pass them. And, you know, you kind of keep on running your race. Right. Um, and if he passes you going back down the hill, that's not a big deal. You don't have to step out of the way. You don't have to in any ways compromise your own racing in order to let them go by. Um, but on the trail, you have to kind of consider all these various factors. And I think that I think I'm getting better at considering a lot of those factors, which I hadn't necessarily considered in the past in the shorter, faster trail races, less technical trail races that I've done. Sure. Um, yeah. So um, once you get ahead in a longer, more technical trail race like this, are you running to like protect first place or are you running to get to the finish line as fast as possible? Like a, a a, it, it was a little bit of both. And and those two things are, I don't think are mutually exclusive. Um, sure. And so, because like we were saying just a minute ago, I had no idea how far behind me he was. Um, and so I did at one point, we had a slight out and back section. You'll remember that going up to that one aid station at 13. Um, yeah. And I saw at that point, he was probably less than two minutes behind me. And so I knew I couldn't really back off too much. Um, otherwise, he would he would probably ultimately end up catching me. Um, but um, but yeah, I found at the end, I probably could have backed off a little bit more and still won fairly comfortably. Um, but, um, but I also had my mind that, you know, I, I want to get the most out of this run that I possibly can. Sure. Um, and so, so, so there was that, the kind of that in my mind too. Um, I definitely wasn't taking as many risks as I might have been. Um, otherwise had it been like in the thick of a race, um, when we went over the super technical sections on the way back in the last that four was... or five miles, I, yeah. I definitely, I definitely took those a little bit more gingerly. I mean, um, that felt like teaching a four-year-old how to play hopscotch. It was, <laughs> you couldn't, there was no way to, 
Like you were just taking one step once, you know, like there was no way to even like hop through that, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, and I wasn't worried about it and I, and I took it easy and I, and, and it turned out to be just fine, I think. Yeah. And, and as soon as I got onto a more runnable part, I, I pushed a little bit more on those and, and, and ran those a little bit more briskly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I did win the race, which I was, I was happy about. Um, um, I was, I was, uh, happy with how that turned out. I ran about what I thought I was capable of running pace wise. Um, and so, so that was, that was pretty cool too. Um, I won a pair of shoes. <laughs> That's awesome. And what shoes did you win? <laughs> so I won a pair of Hoka's. Um, which I don't currently own a pair of Hoka's. And so I guess that's probably a good thing. But uh, the race director said he would circle back around with me sometime over the course of this week so he could get my size and I could express my preference for models and all that sort of thing. So so we'll see. So um, my what... first my first thought would be to get the Tecton X, which is their their trail shoe that's plated, you know, yeah. um, if that's one of, one of my choices. However, um, early in the race, around like the three or four mile mark, I was in a small pack with one other guy who was right in front of me and he stepped on a rock. And he twisted his ankle like I think I saw like the front of his shoe when he twisted oh. his ankle. I mean, it was vicious. And somehow wow. he finished the race, which I don't know if that was a, a great idea for him to do that or not. But that's not my decision. Um, and uh, and so that kind of turned me off the Tecton X a little bit because he was wearing the Tecton X. And then at the finish line, I was talking to him and he totally blamed it on the shoe. Um, and I was like, all right, maybe maybe I won't try those. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I don't know. I did. I did try that shoe a few months ago. It was just not for me. Oh yeah. Um, but people do like it. So yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw, I saw a promo video, a marketing video for it uh, with Hayden Hawks, which made it look appealing. And then the guy who won the JFK 50 this year, um, it's the first time over the course of the last several years since the advent of super shoes um, that the winner of the men's race at the JFK 50 didn't change their shoes uh, mid race. And in fact, he was the only person in the top 10 who didn't change his shoes. Um, people do it because you have this technical section on the Appalachian Trail, but then you have this long, straight, flat section on the CNO towpath, and then the last eight miles are rolling hills on the road, um, and so people will change their shoes. Um, and he didn't stop and change his shoes, and his shoes were the Tecton X. Um, and so that to me suggests that that's a pretty versatile shoe, right? Um, and and that's that's a really good ad for them. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not a big Hoka guy anyway, as you know. So. Um, and what shoes did you wear on Sunday? The same as you. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I was okay. going to mention that. Um, so I I decided to try the Endorphin Edge, um, the Saucony Endorphin Edge, which is their plated trail shoe. Um, after looking at lots and lots and lots of different things, looking for a beefier trail shoe that would be more appropriate for Mountain Mist. Um, that's what I went with. I had done two runs in it. I had made a point to try and run more confidently, not aggressively necessarily, but confidently um, on the trails, the less technical trails around my house when I wore them. Um, and so this was their first real test and I thought they were great. Um, I really like them a lot. I think they're going to be a good choice for, for Mountain Mist next month. So, so yeah, I like them. Do you like them? Yeah, I actually wore them out of the box. <clears throat> do not uh, do not do as I say, don't, don't do as I do, whatever yeah. that expression is. Yeah. Um, I had a little bit of trouble figuring out whether to size down half a size, all the reviews say to size down. Mm. So, but I, I didn't, I went with just my usual running shoe size and I, I thought the shoe was great. I would say if I wasn't thinking about whether I was thinking about the shoe, I wasn't thinking about my feet, which is always a good sign that it's, yeah. you know, that I think it's a good shoe. Um, a lot of the course had, you know, rocks with moss. It was very wet at the beginning overnight from leaves and anywhere there's just slick, you know, branches. And I don't know, maybe there's just no shoe that actually right. sticks to that stuff. Um, a few times, and this is a total like user error. I kept wanting to test the moss on the rocks. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't going that fast or I was crossing a creek and every single time I was like, oh, hell no. Like just <laughs> one time I was like, you know, I'd much rather step in the water, right. And mm -hmm. get my foot wet than, mm -hmm. than test it on these wet rocks covered mm -hmm. with that green stuff. Um, mm -hmm. so I thought it was a great shoe. Um, my feet are, my left foot's a little bit beat up, which is interesting. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, in terms of comfort, I, I just, I felt like they really had an energy return that a lot of other trail shoes I've worn don't have. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, I know we talk about they're plated, but I do think that's 
you know, as much a, a reflection on the foam, so to speak, that is yeah. in conjunction with the plate. So I yeah, agree. I'm pretty happy with them. I think, you know, they were, Saucony did a good job fixing a very bad shoe very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 bad shoe they had was the, that was the, they called it the Endorphin Trail. What was it called? Something I mean, like it that. was. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah, it was and bad. Then, <laughs> and then, and then they they basically recalled the shoe, um, yep. <laughs> and then and then put out the endorphin edge over the summer. Um, and I had read really good reviews of it. Um, the one thing I had read that people said was not great about it is they said that sometimes it can be a little bit too fast going downhill. Um, and I ultimately just kind of said, I'm 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 actually going to be okay with that. Um, yeah, believe in the run. Those guys are on on audio. I think it was believe in the run. I mean, they they compared it to a rocket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I guess there are, if you're trying to race, there are worse things than having rockets on your feet. I mean, they, they, they were worried that it could potentially be dangerous because you'd be running downhill so much faster than your accustomed to running downhill. Um, that wasn't really my experience wearing them. Um, I thought they were grippy. They, I did slip one time on some moss covered rocks and, and kind of like you decided that, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. I, I feel like that was user error. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I wish my, I had only tested it once and learned the lesson, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> I, I needed time a little tighter. Um, I did have a little bit of user error there as well. I think my left foot in particular was, was shifting around a little bit and that caused kind of a, a, a hot spot under my left heel. Um, but other than that, they were great. The The thing that strikes me about them, and I think you said this as well, it reminds me of the first time I ever rode a mountain bike. And, you know, on, on a road bike, if you like see a hole in the road or like some trash dump, you try to avoid it. Right. Sure. Whereas a mountain bike, you just roll over all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and 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 the, the bike is designed to take it. And so you don't totally feel it. Um, right. You can just like roll over rocks and roots and stuff like that. And it's just like smooth right over the top of it. That's the way these shoes felt that you could run over the top of rocks and roots yep. and stuff. And you just kind of rolled right over the top of them. Yeah, um, I agree. hundred so, percent. Yeah, I, 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 I've been very impressed by that. And I like that a lot. I, um, I would also say that. Um, for what it is and the way that it's talked about, it's unbelievably lightweight. Yeah. Like I agree. where is the shoe that's so protective? Yeah. It's yeah. It's I incredibly agree. light and and mm -hmm. even sopping wet, it didn't feel like I was dragging a wet shoe. Yeah. I so. agree. Yeah. I, I wear a size 10. It's under 10 ounces. It's nine and a half ounces according to yeah, my that's scale. That's incredible. Um and it and it feels light on your foot. It has it has a solid stack height. It has like a 36 millimeter stack height and so so you would think that that might make it feel like you're on stilts or be unstable didn't feel that way either yeah yeah um, so so yeah i like it i do like it a lot um um there's just a lot of good shoes out there yeah you know? i know i just um, uh, I, yeah. I just listened to an episode of the drop and they just came from the running event and they're just mm -hmm. talking about and there's just too many shoes i mean you just yeah you know you can pick 10 shoes and have to pick one and you can't go wrong it's just yeah. i guess whatever personal preference at some point. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I'm super happy with these. I don't have anything bad to say about the Adidas Terex Speed Ultras, which both you and I have, and both you and I like, um, but I just think they're just more appropriate for lighter trails. Um, yep. And so I would agree. Um, um, but, but these are good for more technical trails. And so I'm excited to continue wearing them over the course of the next little while. And of course, wear them in Mountain Mist next month. So um, this felt like a much better step towards Mountain Mist for me, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like like I sure. finished shutting last last month and I was I was like, this is awful. I can't believe I'm going to be doing Mountain Mist again. What am I thinking of today? This feels like, okay, I'm more where I need to be. Like I'm um, on the right track. I'm making progress. I'm going to be ready for this 31 mile race, this technical race in, in Huntsville next month. So, so I was yeah. in front of a group of guys that they were also prepping for Mist. And, mm -hmm. but they were just cursing themselves. They're like, why did we pay to come out here today? Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> guys, like this is, this is, this is like on a flat section where I kept asking them if they wanted to pass. And they were like, oh, you're setting such a good pace. I'm like, okay, you want to pay me for that duty or no, I'm just kidding, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, they're just like, oh, this is awful. I can't believe we paid to be out here. I can't wait till January. And I'm thinking like, this is so much better than yeah, January. I was say, if, you, if, if, if you're second guessing, you're paying to be at Pine Mountain, <laughs> yeah. just wait until you're at mile 24 of, uh, of Mountain Mist. So yeah, yeah, so. we'll see. We'll see. All right, cool. Um, um, let's talk about a few other things here. Um, we have, uh, kind of a lot of news we want to talk about uh, and offer here. Um, let's offer some real kind of quick hits on the news here. We, we uh, have a lot of things that in case you missed them, we wanted to mention. One of them uh, 
has happened over the course of the past month or so, um, and we haven't talked about it yet, um, but yet literally before today's podcast, Eric texted us and said, that story about Camille Heron is currently the front page on CNN Sports. And it was. Um, and so literally during a week of the of of uh, the World Cup, you have um, obviously men's college basketball, women's college basketball going on. You have all sorts of other sports taking place. You have uh, co- men's college football is peaking right now. Um, you had a story about ultra running on the front of CNN Sports. Um, and so kind of kind of recap it for us here. Uh, Michelle, tell us what, what it is that happened with Camille back in February. Sure. Um, so Camille set a hundred mile record uh, at Jackpot Ultra Running Festival in Nevada back in February. And there's always this long period of time, you know, when somebody breaks a record, whether it's, uh, you know, a 5K, a 10K, an ultra distance, whatever, uh, in between when the world says they broke the record and it's officially, you know, like ratified and certified. So it came out a few weeks ago uh, that the course did not meet the, um, the measurement. It's about 700 feet short and Camille's world record would not be ratified. Um, so she would not se- se- 700 feet short over a hundred miles. Yeah. Yeah. So, so not, not like every lap was 700 feet short. Like right. literally totality, she ran, she ran 100 miles minus 700 feet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 99.9 so miles basically. Yeah. yeah. Keep going. Just a lot of back and forth about, well, they took the actual measurement, you know, back in February, um, during the duration of the race. And how can you go back eight months later and try to, you know, remeasure it? Um, so it's just been a whole, a whole controversy really. And for whatever reason, um, I'm sure, you know, she's really fighting this hard. She thinks that it should be ratified and she thinks that, you know, what USATF is doing isn't correct and that the course is meets the measurements and that they dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. And, you know, it's always hard because it feels like you're reading both you're reading USATF statement on why the course is short and her record won't be ratified. And you're reading, you know, her response and her husband slash coach, um, you know, and their response is is filled with a lot of emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so understandably, it, right? Yeah, it's just kind of been a brewing back and forth of he said, she said. I don't really think there's any chance that USATF is going to rescind their decision, like not to ratify the record. I don't but think so either. It's now, you know, made its way to the front page of CNN. So anytime ultra running hits the front page of CNN. We should really talk about it on our podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, she said, um, you know, she poured her heart and soul into the effort. Um, She was in the Washington Post talking about it last month. And she said uh, she to the Washington Post, quote, I hope I get another opportunity to record, but I may not. You don't know what the future holds. So this is highly impactful on me and my career. I mean, I'm 40 years old. You know, my time is now. I'm, I'm in the best shape of my life. And I mean, these moments can be fleeting. I put my heart and soul into that performance, and it was such a big deal for the sport and the history of sport that it needs to count, she said. Um, we should say also she ran 12.41.11, 12 hours, 41 minutes, 11 seconds. That's 7.37 per mile, which is pretty incredible. Um, and she broke her own record, which she set back in 2017. Right. So even if this one isn't ratified, she's still going to be the world record holder for 100 miles based on what she ran back in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I felt frustrated reading this because like I mentioned before, I thought there was a lot of misinformation. So I reached out to uh, Andy Carr, who's local here, uh, Atlanta Track Club. But, he, you know, for people that don't know, he is a member of the administrative division, the records committee of USATF. He specifically works to certify men's and women's long distance running records. Um, so... I said, like, what is what is going on here? What what are we missing? Like how, you know, whose fault is this, so to speak? And he basically said, and this is a quote, um, there was some issue on the certified course before the race, so it had to be altered by the race director. The race director tried to remeasure the new course during the actual running of the race and get it certified. The course for a record must be certified before the race starts. And since the course was now changed by the race director, this was not the case anymore as no matter how minor the change, the course she ran was not certified ahead of time. He said a little bit more, but I, my biggest frustration with Connor and Camille's approach to this is 
If you dot all of your I's and cross all of your T's, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether it's a certified course prior to the start of the race. Mm -hmm. As soon as the race director announces any change to the course, then you also know that that change to the course means that whatever course certification existed before no longer exists. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, you know, why go into it? Why did she start? Yeah. Why start? Whether she knew that the course was going to actually be measured and certified during the race itself, I feel like that's irrelevant. She knew you had to know ahead of time if you understand the rules. And those, Connor and Camille, I don't have to ask them. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, they understand the rules. She's sat on advisory committees for years. Um, but as soon as the race director changes the course, you have a problem with the certification. You're no longer running a 100 mile certified course. Now, if she did it and she banked on the fact that they were going to certify the new course during the race, um, that they were going to measure, sorry, the new course during the race and get it certified, which, which is, which is probably what the race director was telling her a hundred percent, then you might have 99% for sure. This is going to happen. There's almost no reason why it wouldn't happen, why it wouldn't get certified, but she might've just got caught in that 1%, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. And it's, and it's fine if she did. And I understand her emotional reaction to it, but I think the rules are the rules. And I really think it's on Camille. You know, I don't think she has much to stand, to stand on. Uh, they changed the course, you know, ahead of time, there's going to be a problem with whatever the certification was. You have to make a decision, you know, whether you're going to run and you have to live with the outcome of whether the course that you decided to run on actually gets certified as a hundred mile course. And unfortunately, in this case, of this year's jackpot ultra running festival, it is not certified a hundred mile course. Yeah. So. And I, I, I think that the quotations that she gave to the Washington post that were then repeated in the CNN sports article, that's on, like we said, their front page right now. Um, I, I think that that actually hints at the reason why she decided to go ahead and run. She's like, you know, I'm in really good shape. I don't know how many of these more, uh, how many more of these I have uh, the opportunity to do. Uh, the race director is assuring me that it's probably going to be okay. And so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, I can totally understand where she was coming from. I can, I can appreciate her psychology and making that decision, but yeah, like you said, at the same time, she knew there was a risk. Um, and, and that risk has in fact been realized. Um, and she's not going to be able to, to have this record ratified. I don't think it's going to change. Like you said, I mean, and, and I, and I feel for her, man. I mean, she she has she has a brilliant resume. She's still going to be the world record holder. She still won comrades. I mean, she's she's still going to be highly respected as one of the great ultra runners of, of American history for sure. Um, I feel for her though. I mean, I, I I get where she's coming from, but this is not a fight. I think she's going to win. Yeah. Um. So so yeah yeah. Um. Uh. While we're talking about other things, kind of in the news here. Um. Uh, speaking of greatest runners of all time, uh, one of the greatest runners of all time is Ethiopia's Haile Geber Selassie. Um, uh, one of his few remaining world records was a 17-year-old world record for 10 miles um, uh, that uh, was broken just this past weekend by Bernard Koich um, at the Kumamoto Kosa 10-miler in Japan. Uh, Bernard Koich ran 424 pace. He ran 4404 uh, to beat Haile Geber Selassie's 17-year-old world record for 10 miles. Um, that was a really deep race, by the way. 100 runners ran under 4930 in that race. Yeah, Japan, Japan is just a different place, man. Um, and that was also the same weekend that speaking of stuff from Japan, the same weekend this past weekend was the Fukuoka Marathon, um, which at one time was considered to be the most competitive marathon in the world, even though the field was always small. It was always like an invitational marathon. Um, and a guy named Maru Teferi became the first ever Israeli winner uh, running 206.43. Um, at that same race, a guy named Brett Robinson broke uh, the Australian national record uh, that had been held by Rob DiCostella. Um, he finished fourth um, and ran 207.31. Um, and then the last piece of news we'll mention here, and this will segue into to a bigger piece of news that we're going to talk about here in a second, um, was the fastest ever debut uh, in a marathon was run this past weekend by Kelvin Kiptum. Um, he ran 201.53 at Valencia. Valencia is fast. I would like to go there. 
So Valencia is definitely on my list. <laughs> I think that, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Val Val Valencia is definitely on my list. Yeah. He ran 201.53. He's, he's only the third person along with Elliot Kipchoge and Kenanisa Bekele ever to run under 202 now. Um, it was his debut marathon, obviously the fastest debut that anybody's ever run. He also ran the fastest second half of a marathon that anybody's ever ran. He ran 60.15 for the back incredible. half. Incredible. Um, and that included a 28.05 10K from 30K to 40K. 28.05 yeah. split it's, in it's a marathon, almost, in the back half of a marathon. Yeah, it's it's hard to even kind of wrap your mind around that. But it, yeah. it must have been just an incredible day at Valencia because yeah. the women were also pretty hot. I think there were seven women under 219. Yeah. Um, the winner yeah. basically became the third woman ever to go under 215. She ran yeah. 214.58. She was a little bit shadowed by Latenzanet Gide's uh, marathon debut. And she did run 214.58, but she was very frustrated after. And, and so was her coach because the goal was to break the world record. And she felt like she really could have broken the world record, but there was such a focus on Gide's debut that the Pacers actually stayed back with her um, mm. and did not help Bariso, you know, try to break the world record. So mm. obviously we have several years, hopefully, of marathoning to watch from Gide, but, you know, Bariso's up there now also. Yeah. Um, and honestly, just just seeing, I, I mean, I remember a few years ago in Chicago, you know, when we saw 214 and we just you don't see that in a woman's race. Um, mm -hmm. But now we've seen it three times this year and it feels like two or three times this year. And it feels like 214 is what 219 used to be. Right. Yeah. There was, yeah. there was, Ooh, and awe. like anytime a woman went under 220. Yeah. And now that threshold has basically been lowered to like, yeah, I mean, there's 215s, 216s, lots of 217s, but yeah. like now the 214ers were, you know, what 219ers were, yeah. I would say just right up until super shoes really, really made their mark. Well, my, my, when I first started paying attention to international marathoning and basically the sport of running as a professional sport, that would have been the mid 1990s, right? When I was in high school and in college. Um, and at that point, no women had ever broken 220. I believe um, it. And, and that, and that was this big thing. Who's going to be the first woman to break 220? Who's going to be the first woman to break 220? Um, and, and no woman had ever broken 220. And now, like if you break two, if you break 220, that's fantastic, but you're probably not going to win the race you're in. <laughs> yeah. You might be in the top 10. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's on amazing. a fast course. It's, yeah. it might it's get you top 10. Yeah. So, um, the weather in Valencia is a fast course. The weather was evidently perfect, perfect. for marathoning on that day. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah. Um, now they, they, I did see an interview, um, with Elliot Kipchoge. Um, it was actually Sidious Mag was interviewing and they said, so, you know, Kelvin Kiptum ran, uh, ran 201.53. You worried about that? And he was like, no, I am no. not worried. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not worried. <laughs> um, uh, which, which I just thought was great, which is sort of a perfect answer because, because he obviously, you know, he's, he's a confident guy, but, but he, he tends to be very humble and he's lauded for his humility. Um, and, and I appreciate that about him, but, but I did appreciate the, the, the flash there of swagger from Elliot Kipchoge. I'm not worried. Um, by this young person who has run 2.153. Um, so speaking of Kipchoge, um, the big news about him this week that I'm pretty excited about um, is that he is running the Boston Marathon next year. Uh, Boston Marathon is going to be on April 17th of 2023, and they announced their, their elite field, or at least some of their elite fields, the leaders of their elite field this week. Um, and it's funny because they have all the, the the both men's and women's defending champion from this past year they had the men's defending champion from two years ago and like all that is totally overshadowed by the fact that ellie kipchoge is coming to run the boston marathon um I, uh, not I only not only like in the release it's overshadowed but like among fans among everybody it's like it's like i don't yeah. know who these other people are but ellie kipchoge is going to be there it um, was it's exciting it was a solid probably 12 hours after the baa renounced announced all of the elite fields that I was like, oh, well, I guess they probably announced the women also, right? <laughs> because oh, oh, there are other people running? I didn't realize like, that. The whole conversation yeah. is, oh my gosh, I want to go spectate. But then it's like, oh, but it's a better view just sitting in front of the TV. Yeah. But I want to be in Boston if he's going to Boston because like we've all been waiting for that and it's historic. And then 
I open Instagram and it's like, oh, look, Des is going too. And yeah. you know, like all yeah. the, all the really awesome people that you want to see there. Uh, the women's side is also, you know, loaded with uh, previous champions from Boston, world champions, Olympic medalists. So mm-hmm. as usual, as it usually goes, Boston is going to be the place to be on April 17th. So right on, um, right on. You, um, do you think he can win there? Okay. So that's the question though, right? Because um, I mean, the obvious question, I mean, like, I, I think I saw a, a spoof article this week that said, you know, uh, Elliot Kachogi was named champion of the 2023 Boston Marathon or something like that, you know, because I think most people are like, oh, he's the greatest marathon of all time. He lowered his own world record to 20109 just in Berlin a couple of months ago. He's the two-time uh, Olympic defending champion. He's probably the favorite for the next Olympic championship and being the, the first person ever three-peat as Olympic champion. Like, all that stuff is true. But this is not a slam dunk. No way. Yeah, this There's is this actually... is not this is not certain. Um, I mean, effectively, the number him. two and number three marathon in the world are also going to be there. I mean, he he's clearly the number one marathon in the world, obviously. But Evans Chibet, who won Boston this year, um, and then went on to win New York this year, and so he won Boston and New York both in 2022, is going to be there. Um, the 2021 winner of Boston. Uh, Benson Camprudo, who then went on to win Chicago this year in 2022, he's going to be there. Those guys are are the second and third best marathoners in the world. If anybody's going to beat Elliot Kipchoge, it's likely to be one of them, right? You also have Lisa DeCisa, another two-time champion in there. Um, it's been eight years since, since he won, and so I don't think people are going to really necessarily consider him to be part of it, but he could be. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, so yeah. I, I think it's I think it's pretty incredible um, that that he's going to have a field. He's going to have to actually go out and run and win this race. Like, right. it, it's not just going to be handed to him. Right. You, you put in you, you you add to that that there's not going to be pacemakers there. It's not and flat. It's not fast. It's not flat. Yeah. You know, the weather could be a question mark. You know, I mean, there, there's all sorts of other things. I mean, he's run 19 marathons. The only what? marathons he's ever run without pacemakers are the Olympic marathons. Now, granted, he did fine in those. <laughs> he won them both, yeah, won right? Them. <laughs> um, but, but and both of those were were not flat, fat, fast courses necessarily either, right? And they weren't um, great weather either. Yeah, and so so he has shown that that he can he can flip his head out of pace mode, time trial mode, and into race mode, right? He's shown that he is capable of winning in that regard as well. Um, uh, and so I I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't write him off. Obviously, I don't think anybody's going to do that. Um, but this is much different from the Berlin, the Chicago, the London, um, all of which he's won, was, um, that, that are so much flatter and faster, um, than, than what Boston normally is. Was racing in Chicago the last time he raced on American yeah. soil? Yeah. Um, yeah, he won Chicago back in 2014 and that's the last time he raced in the United States. And so it will have been nine years, eight and a half years that he hasn't raced in the United States. And and critically, between then and now is when he has become considered grace of all time, right? Yeah. Um, it's in that time he's won two Olympic championships that he ran under two hours as part of the, the Breaking Two project or the, the Enios 159 challenge. Um, it's been since that time um, that he became the first person to run under 202. It's been since that time that he lowered his own world record, you know, like, all of those things have happened since he won Chicago way back in, in 2014. Um, and so, so yeah, um, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I, I don't have any plans to, to go to Boston and maybe the reason why I can justify not going to Boston to see him run this time. Cause like you said, cause I'll get to actually watch it better if I just stay home and watch it. But, but also I feel like, he might go to New York in the fall. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and if he goes to New York in the fall, like now I'm like, maybe I should change up my fall plans and and try and and double back after I do Berlin next fall and, and, and try and get in New York so I can be in the same race as Elliot Kipchoge. I don't know. It was definitely cool being in the same race as Kenanisa Bekele in London um, and yeah, actually getting to see him it, at the starting line. Um, uh, I would, yeah. I don't know. I just think the, just knowing he's there, I feel like it just makes it, it brings the race kind of just like that tiny bit more prestige, so to speak. Oh, yeah. It's just, for I feel sure. like any fan of the sport has been waiting, you know, for him to either 
uh, show up on a Boston start list or a New York start list. So we're yeah. going to get to see yeah. one of those next year. Or both. I, I, actually or think both. We're gonna, yeah. I, I actually think there's a really good possibility we'll get to see both. Yeah, um, I think you have good reason to think that. He, he has said he has said that he wants to win all six marathon majors. Nobody, by the way, has ever won five world marathon majors. Um, and he's already won four. Uh, if he were to win in Boston, that would be five. And then if he went into New York and won there, that would be six. Um, and then you have the Olympics in 2024, where he could become the three P guy. And then maybe he'll retire because he is 38 years old already. Um, and so, but I don't know. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. It's super exciting. Yeah, it's great. But there are other people that are going to run the race too. they're out there good luck finding them (laughs) so um a bunch of people actually another segue here and a bunch of people actually qualified for boston um not for 2023 but for 2024 alas miss getting run with ellie kipchoge by a mere one year um uh at the so-called bq factory um or the otq factory you might even call it uh at the california international marathon this past weekend um that's also the uh the u.s marathon championship um every year uh here in december um you've run cim right michelle i have run cim i ran it in 2018 and and you really just there. Mm-hmm. an incredible experience um mm-hmm. so former uh podcast co-host patrick mm-hmm. also ran it that year mm-hmm. um that's where so- his pr is Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's where my PR is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Might just stay there, but it's not a bad place for it to be. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's a downhill course, but it's still legal. Mm-hmm. I think uh, people that run rolling hills well, like it, it really favors if you if you train here in the Atlanta area. Yeah, um, you, you said it's not it's not like just a steady straight up downhill. I mean, it starts at 366 feet. It finishes at 26 feet. So oh, over the you- course of an entire marathon, you lose 340 feet. And that's about the maximum that's allowed. It doesn't Um, feel like a downhill course. It just, it feels like a course that has the perfect amount of like rolling hills basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I would highly, highly recommend if, if anyone it's become kind of this just Mecca of marathons, the whole city comes out and I think it used to just kind of be this small small town race, but it is something special. So, Mm -hmm. um, and we had a plethora of uh, Boston qualifiers, but also, you know, even with the lower standard for the Olympic trials for Paris for 2024, um, at least on the women's side, there were 43 women that ran under the qualifier, which is 237 down from 243, 245. Um, and of those 43 qualifiers, I believe, and I would have to go back to check this because it's been a few days and sometimes the results change. I think 35 of them are first time Olympic trials qualifiers. That's great. So that's just incredible. Yeah. Um, awesome to see that, you know, as USATF lowers the standards, we might not have 400 plus qualifiers, but there are women just going after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's cool. Um, one of the, one of the great visuals at CIM is always, because they, because CIM knows that that people go there to run Olympic trials qualifiers, yep. and so you have these huge packs of people um, that that run with a pace group essentially, all running right at whatever that pace happens to be. So two thirty seven for the women, that's right at six minute pace, right? And so yep. so you have you have the huge group of women that will just go out six minutes, six minutes, six minutes, six minutes, six minutes. And then people kind of slowly get broken off of that group or fall off of that group. Same thing with the men. The men's qualifying time is now 2.18. Um, they lowered it by a minute. Um, and so that's about 5.15 pace. And you have a massive number of guys that are just 5.15, 5.15, 5.15. And people kind of slowly end up dropping off of that group there. Uh, but one of the coolest visuals always at the at CAM is the women. And I I'm pretty sure the men don't do this too, um, because I think I probably would have seen this visual, but um, the women will often, who finish between like 230 and 235, will often stand there at the line and cheer for the other women who are coming across the line as they are getting their qualifying times. And it's just super cool to see them cheering and celebrating each other's victories together because they all work together in order to get there, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's always kind of fun to see. Uh, what was the name of the the last woman's qualifier who came across the line? This is not uh, on our notes, but I like I would I just knew you were going to go there. Um, so I know, name, I know. I, okay, go ahead. Her name's Caroline Williams. I there actually um, 
So just to be clear, a few years ago, there was a lot of problems because CIM became really popular. They always just went by gun time. Um, and, you know, there was people having to appeal to get in because they missed the finish by a few seconds. But naturally, the women get pushed back at the start. Right. So thankfully, even though the video, it looks like even if you're not pushed back very far, you push back 10 seconds. It takes you 10 seconds to get across the line that that 10 seconds can be the difference between a qualifier and non-qualifier. Oh, oh, for sure. So um, actually, so Caroline Williams came across at 237.01. Her chip time, I believe, was 36, 56 or 57. Mm -hmm. Um, The woman that came in after Caroline actually had a faster chip time, even though she was in a few seconds behind her. So -hmm. she was also fine. But Caroline Williams is a great runner's world just put out an article on her. Um, But she's actually been training partners with Katie Kellner, who um, a friend of mine used to use her as a coach. She ran professionally a little bit for the BAA. And she's the one who was featured running in Boston when the dog was like drowning. Do you remember this? No, Okay. I don't know the story. (laughs) Well, you need to go look it up anyway. Um, so she has been trying, I actually met her at the 2016 Olympic trials in LA. She had been running and I met her at like a Brooks after party because she was a Brooks athlete then. And then she was, she did not qualify for the next trial. So she's basically been on a seven year hunt since the 2016 trials to try to requalify. Not only did she, she ran like a 235. Um, which is like a five minute PR for her, but it's good to see. It was so good to see both of them qualify Mm -hmm. because um, yeah, Caroline stumbled in pretty hard. (laughs) She did. She did, but she was able to squeeze in and that rule change that the one that we're talking about with, with gun times versus chip times, that's new for this Olympic cycle. Um, And so, so this is really the first time um, that women are able to use their chip times rather than their gun times, which I think is a good change. Um, Oh yeah. That needed to be changed. Um, As somebody who's experienced the chaos of the start at CIM, you can actually be a front runner. If you just miss the, you know, if you're like literally five seconds out of the porta potty too late, Mm -hmm. it can affect you getting, pushing yourself all the way up in the front. Like they don't see that there's no corrals, there's no seating you just got to get, you got to get in line early and you got to get lucky. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really good to see that the rule change and the gun time, you know, it shows that that was, that was a necessary change that needed to be made. So. Very good. Very good. Um, We said it was the marathon championship. The men's marathon championship was won by a guy named Futsum Zaina Selassie. Um, It's a name I hadn't heard before. Futsum Zaina Selassie. Um, He ran 211.01 in his debut marathon, as a matter of fact, and became a U.S. champion. Um, And Paige Stoner, in her third marathon, ran 226.02 to win the women's U.S. marathon championship. So congratulations to Futsum and to Paige. Yep. Paige was part of the Reebok group, you know, the Reebok Boston group that mm-hmm. <laughs> was in Baltimore or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think that group is kind of disbanded now. And my understanding from, from a running friend is she's, she's not, she's self-coached now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good to see her. She had on the old Reebok kit, but she had on Vaporflies. So um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if she's talking with people or picks up a sponsor or just kind of keeps doing what she's been doing, but you know, whatever she's been doing seems to be working. So <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the, you mentioned that 43 U S women qualified, including a very high percentage of those that were first time qualifiers. Uh, one of them was, uh, Megan Christian from the Atlanta track club, and she was running her third marathon in six weeks. <laughs> so, you know, if anybody from Atlanta track club is listening, I reached out right away to, to my friend elite runner there and, um, to try to get in touch with Megan, to ask her to come on the podcast. I, I've not been successful with that, but another podcast dropped and she must've gone from CIM to this podcast. Um, so I heard the whole story more than if you have been following um, Atlanta track club head coach, uh, Amy Bagley's social, uh, she posted a whole, like, what was it? 12 or 18 like a timeline of how it came to be that Megan, you know, it was one thing for her to ask to run Philly after New York went poorly, but then she, you know, called her up and was like, I think I might want to do CIM. And it was, yeah, it's been a lot of, a lot of talk about back to back to back, but Mm -hmm. uh, Megan's big goal this year was to get into the sub two thirty club. She called it. And, and New York was just a bad day. And 
Philly went pretty good. She ended up coming in second place there by six seconds, which I think mm. she talks about like, oh my God, six seconds. If yeah. she had had another 200 meters, like she was totally coming for her. Uh, that wasn't a PR though. That was her second fastest marathon. And, and then she just said her body felt great and she was recovering fine and her head felt good and she really wanted to try again. So <laughs> she went out to CIM top 10, uh, 229, 21. Mm-hmm. And I really hope she's taking some rest now. <laughs> I do too. I do too. You know, it's funny. One of the very first podcasts, like literally in the first 10 podcasts I recorded um, before Patrick joined me as a co-host, long before you joined me as a co-host, Michelle, um, I talked about some research on near misses um, and about how people who get a near miss often are far more motivated than people who actually hit the target. Um, and so I wonder, and this is simply a wondering, um, if she would have actually won in Philadelphia, if she would have circled back to do CIM, um, the fact that she finished second and she felt like she could have won. And like that actually left her in a mental place where she was able to, to rebound only a couple of weeks later and join the sub two thirty club at CIM. Um, if she had won, she might've been like, that's good. We can call, we can, we can, we can close the curtain on this season. Um, yeah. You know, so, um, so, so yeah, yeah. I, I um, have to think if, if she made another phone call to Amy or Andrew, they'd uh, have a lot of passion behind just saying no. <laughs> <laughs> like I if she wanted to knows. do, like if she wanted to do Rocket City this weekend in Huntsville or something like that, um, or Miami next month or, or Mountain Mist. Um, yeah, yeah, probably not, not going to see her. At Mist. <laughs> probably not, probably not. Um, 41 US men qualified. Um, they ran under 218, which like we said before, is about 515 pace. Alas, the, the story of the people that we know that are friends of the podcast here um, are stories of them not qualifying. Um, George Christ, who is a uh, uh, lives in Macon, Georgia, and is one of my teammates for the Ragnar Relay for, uh, this past year. Um, he was aiming at running sub 218 and ran uh, 224.57. He kind of stuck his nose in and he said for the first 14 or 15 miles and just couldn't keep up anymore. Um, just kind of fell apart there. So he think he's going to kind of reload and try and go for it again at Grandma's. Um, and then front of the podcast, Taggart Van Etten, um, who has said on our podcast after he set that treadmill world record that that it was more important to him to become an Olympic trials qualifier than anything else. Um, he has tried multiple times over the course of the past year to qualify. He uh, hired CJ Albertson as his coach, as we've talked about before. Um, he ran 221.10. Um, so, and so so once again, didn't qualify. Actually ran kind of similarly to, to, to our, my friend George um, in that he was kind of in the mix for about 16, 17, 18 miles and then just kind of started falling off the pace and couldn't quite hang on anymore. He did PR. Um, and yeah, so, I was going to say that is a PR. Him is that, that's a PR from 221.10. It's not as if that's a slow time either. Um, and no. so, um, and so, so yeah, he, he clearly ran pretty fast. Um, but he, uh, he put on Strava, he put on Instagram, 2023 is going to be my year. So he, he still very much has it on his radar. Um, and so so we will continue to yeah, see what happens with him. We very much keep him on our radar, or at least so, I keep so, him on my radar. <laughs> so absolutely. I mean, he came on the podcast. And so so we appreciate that. Um, last thing we'll say here about CIM is to talk about um, a couple of people close to home here um, who have listened to the podcast before, Crystal Andrews and Jody Sindelar, um, who are both ITL athletes. Um, went out and ran Boston qualifiers and PRs there at CIM. Um, and so they will yeah, be, uh, they will be qualified for 2024. I've um, been running, you know, as much as I can on, on Thursday morning, the ITL group run in Brookhaven. And these women are like kicking ass. I mean, they're showing up and it's dark and it's cold and nobody is running fast, but they're doing their pickups and they're doing their, you know, I don't know. They're just always running way faster than me on Thursdays. So it's good. It's really good to see when, you know, hard work, uh, hard work pays off. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Um, they both qualified for Kona, which is next year. And we want to talk about the changes to Kona, <laughs> but we're out of time. <laughs> that is and such so, a good segue though. We're never going to get that. Segue I know. Again. I know. We're never going to get that segue again. Right. Um, we'll have to try and figure out. We have, we have a week or two to come up with a, a good way to segue into Kona, but maybe yeah, we can bring them on. Maybe so, we could talk about their road to Boston road to Kona, how they feel about the changes about Kona. Maybe that's the plan. <laughs> maybe that's the play. Um, Michelle, I appreciate you being here as always. Thanks for having me. See you.
see you next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good afternoon. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's SlayRx.com, Facebook.com slash Here4SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at OfficialSlayRx. And Instagram, Here4SlayRx, the number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT22. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.